Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as He makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Good morning, everyone. Uh, like some people have already referenced, my name is Jimmy. I am one of the pastors here this morning. Uh, I am so thankful that y'all are here uh, to start the new year off with us. Happy 2024. Um, hope holidays were good for everyone. They were restful, not getting to see my face for a week. Um, two weeks, actually. Yeah, yeah. We skipped last week. Um, hey, before I started, I just wanted someone uh, shared something with me, and they asked me to share this with everyone so we could celebrate. Uh, so, Michael, do you want to raise your hand? Michael Stanley, he, this is going on 29 years of sobriety, and so, yeah. Michael, you, you are a great, great man. I feel very, very blessed and privileged to know you and to be friends with you. Without cigarettes, too. That's awesome, Michael. Yeah. Yeah, good job, man. Hey, well, um, I did miss you all very much, and I... Because of that, I just want to jump right in and start talking because I haven't done it in a couple weeks. Um, Every year, without fail, what is our natural inclination at the beginning of the year? It's Yeah, it's New Year's resolutions, right? New year, new me. We resolve to be better, do better, live better. Whether that involves working out or eating better or working harder at our jobs, whatever it is, the word for January is always better. And that's not a bad thing, right? Like, I'm not here to poo-poo on your New Year's resolutions or your goals, but I do want to be honest with you guys from the start. I am not a goals-oriented person. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Tiana just laughed. Uh, let, me, let me finish. Let me finish. I don't know what it is, but I, like, sometimes I'm, like, skeptical of myself when I'm setting goals. I think I'm probably, like, I don't know if realistic's the word, but it's like, I'll be like, yeah, I'm going to read 40 books this year. And then immediately I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> like, I, I can't even convince myself for like the first couple of weeks of January. So for whatever reason, I have just never been a goals-oriented person. For those of you who are, all the more power to you, uh, maybe I could use some help. But I am always skeptical of myself as I set goals. Uh, I want to give you an example of the way that this played out. Um, I was actually interviewing for a job at Northwestern Mutual last week. No, I'm not last week. I'm joking. Uh, about seven years ago. <laughs> and <laughs> some of you, okay, we got there. Uh, this was seven years ago, just to be clear. Um, and the interviewer asked me, what goals, professional or otherwise, do you have for yourself? And then they sort of tacked on, like, where do you see yourself in five years? And I... I am like the king of like making things up on the spot. I never read in college and just like would make things up in class and I would be fine. Um, But I, in this scenario, like bumbled my way through the worst possible answer I could give. I'm just like, said goals maybe 17 times and all of this. And I like, I'm starting to bumble. And then I just stopped and I'm like, okay, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have like particular career goals right now. Uh, If you ask me what I want to be doing in five years, I have no idea what I want to be doing, but I do know the kind of person I want to be. And that's, that's more my motivation. Now, I didn't get the job, but the, intervi- the interview was super formational for me because it helped me to put together the idea that had been sort of rattling around my small brain for a while, right? Why am I bringing up this interview from seven years ago? 
while we, we actually did this in August, but we thought it would be a good time to sort of introduce some of these goals um, for our church. So in August, our leadership team, our staff team, um, we sat down and we were like, where is Missio Day Uptown going? Like, who are we? Where are we going? Uh, and we thought it'd be fun to share with you some of our goals for our community in 2024. But at, even as we were setting these goals in August, and as I thought about the way to share them in the new year, that same idea of like, um, I don't know necessarily where we'll be, uh, but I do know the kind of church that I want us to be, right? That, that same idea. And so I, I just wanted to share from the, the jump that I am more concerned about the kind of church we are rather than how big a church we are, right? Yeah, what, what kind of church are we? What is our essence? What are our values? How do those play out? Not how much money do we make? How big are we, right? How many people do we see on a Sunday? And that's where our current series comes in. So we're going to be calling this series A Church for Uptown. Uh, it's a, a, coin, or a phrase that Chris coined um, as he was making our new signs. And I thought it was really apt as we begin to explore, like, what kind of church are we going to be? What kind of church are we already? And what kind of church are we going to become in 2024? What kind of church does Uptown need? What kind of church looks like Uptown, represents Uptown well, and what kind of church does Uptown deserve, right? Now, with all that being said, our staff team did compile some goals a few months ago, and I do want to share those with you. But I said, as I said before, these goals are less like benchmarks and a lot more like goals that are cultivated, values that we hope to begin to shine through we're already are shining through, but want to continue to strengthen within our church, right? So we have four of these goals. I'm going to throw them up on the screen. Um, and I just want to talk very briefly about three of them and then spend a big time um, talking about the uh, fourth one. So uh, tangible discipleship is the first one. We've talked about this a lot over this past year. I, what I, the question that comes along with this goal is, what does it look like for our church to cultivate a culture of discipleship and life together that points us closer to Christ, right? And how is that tangibly showing up in our community? The second one being known in the public square, or uptown public square, we're going to talk about that one today because that's actually a little bit of a strange one, and so, but I'm excited to explore that one. Uh, so put a pin in that one. Third one is sustainability of ministry. So this means sustainability of finances, so recognizing our reality, the kind of church we are, and how can we reach more sustainability as a church, but also knowing that we're a church who cares deeply about justice, who cares deeply about mercy, and in Uptown with our leaders and people who participate in that sort of work, it can be taxing. So how can we sustainably continue to do the work of justice, right, without burning ourselves out? And then number four, foster a spirit of reliance. Uh, this one is actually less like a separate goal from the others and more of like how the others come to be, right? It informs the way we do the other things. So how can we, or what does it look like for us to rely on God, the Holy Spirit, and not our own strengths or abilities to carry out our ministry here in Uptown, right? But like I said before, I do want to focus on number two this morning, being known in the Uptown public square. Now, being known in the public square can mean a lot of things and can result in a lot of things. As I was thinking about what this even means, what it could mean, um, or how it could even be misinterpreted, two things came to mind for me when considering people trying to make, make a name for themselves. And those two things were intense 
and methods. Intent and methods, right? Think about methods for a second. There's people like Johnny Knoxville, who I have up on the screen. There he is. Uh, he has made himself known on a TV show uh, whose name I won't share, um, for doing stupid stunts and intentionally putting himself in bad situations. If you don't know who Johnny Knoxville is, here, yeah, here's a good example. They have a movie, or they have a, quite a few movies. It was a TV show on MTV first. Okay, I'll just admit, I like, love this show. I shouldn't. <laughs> but I was like, how can I work this show? And no, no uh, I'm, yeah, I don't know. I like grew up on it, but it, we don't need to dwell on that. Um, this, is him, this is him like getting full-blown hit by a bull. Right? He was actually in the hospital for three months after this. Three straight months, yeah. Um, so this is how Johnny Knoxville, this was his method of becoming known, right? And then think about someone like the Archbishop Desmond Tutu. You know, when I think of uh, Johnny Knoxville, I also think of Desmond Tutu, right? <laughs> it's hand in hand. Um, how did Desmond Tutu become known? He was someone who stepped into leadership in South Africa post-apartheid and began to reassemble and put the country back together, right? So that was his method of being known. And then when you think about like intent, like what is the intent when someone's like, I'm going to be known, right? These two are great examples as well. I think now, I'm not saying like Johnny Knoxville is a bad person or anything, but his intent for becoming known is at least, at best, neutral, right? That was his, his intent was at best neutral. But Tutu, when we think about Tutu, what was his intent for sort of becoming known? I think it was uh, because of his incredible courage and grace in helping to rebuild South Africa, right? That's just how it happened. I actually want to share a quote with you from him um, that talks about sort of why he stepped into the role he did. It says, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality, right? And so he saw this situation where he was like, no one's stepping into this. And I, being a man who deeply, deeply understood grace, realized he could step in and be someone who led deeply, deeply in grace, right? And so methods and intents, those things sort of are, are inform why being known even is a thing, right? Now, the question arises, though, if we have this goal— what will we be known for, right? What will we be known for? There are plenty of churches that are known in particular public squares, right? Um, we don't need to explore why some of those in Chicago are known more than others, right? Because there are often bad reasons why they're known in the public square. So the question for us is what is our motivation as a staff team when we say that we want to be known in the uptown public square? To start, I want to tell you what it does not mean, okay? It does not mean that I desire to be, for my name to be known. Um, I don't desire, and I don't think Tiana desires for her name to be known. I don't even desire that Missio Day Uptown is a name that is great among Uptown, right? I do not want to be known because of the charisma of our leadership or members, because we are good at making friends, or because we are good at inserting ourselves in the conversation. I want us to be known because I want us to use that to make Jesus known. In other words, as John the Baptist says, he must become greater, I must become less. I want us to know people and be known in the neighborhood because I want to introduce people to the beauty that is Jesus, right? The beauty that we have experienced in this church. 
But again, this is still incredibly theoretical, right? What does it mean that we are known for making Jesus known? In other words, I still haven't answered the question of what I want us to be known for. And that's where John chapter 9 comes in this morning. When we arrive in John chapter 9, uh, if you don't remember, John chapter 8 is right before John 9. Um, and in John chapter 8, Jesus is having a conversation with the religious elites, and it's going pretty poorly. Uh, Jesus claims that he is the Savior, that he is the Messiah, and people don't like that. Um, he says that he gives eternal life, and they're like, how can you give eternal life? Like, Moses was a great guy, or sorry, Abraham was a great guy, and he's not alive. So how can you say that you're greater than Abraham? And this is where Jesus' famous line comes in, before Abraham was born, I am. In other words, Jesus calls himself God, and the religious elites get mad about this, and so Jesus leaves, right? And as Jesus leaves, we enter John 9, and this is where we see Jesus uh, meet the man who is blind. It says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. He saw a man blind from birth. Why is this important? Why is this wording important that it talks about Jesus seeing the man? Well, we know later from the story that this man would uh, sit and beg in the neighborhood. That's what he was known for, right? What is implied here, particularly based on the cultural realities of those who would be in this situation at Jesus' time, is that the man who is blind is most likely disconnected from his family and isolated from the culture around him, right? He's disconnected from his family and isolated from any sort of community. And yet, Jesus sees him. Jesus looks at him. Jesus notices him. I can't help but think of the story of Hagar in Genesis, right? What does she call God? You are the God who sees. Jesus, God, notices those forced to the margins of our society, right? And Jesus' disciples notice that Jesus notices because immediately they ask a question of him that sets up the rest of our chapter, right? What is that question? Teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this type of question, just even asking the question, I think probably offends our modern sensibilities. If it doesn't, maybe it should. Um, but you can't fully blame the disciples. Well, you can fully blame the disciples, but the reality is they were part of the product of, or they were a product of their time, right? They were asking the question of who was responsible for this man's physical disability because they would have been, or because that would have been the typical way of thinking at the time. I want to read to you what N.T. Wright says of this chapter and of the culture of the time. He says, thinking like this is a way of trying to hold on to a belief of God's justice. Think about this. If something in the world seems unfair, but if you believe in a God who's both all-powerful, all-loving, and all-fair, one way of getting around the problem is to say that it only seems unfair, but it isn't. You guys see what he's saying? He's saying if we believe in a God of justice, and yet we see that something is unfair, something has to explain it, or it's just actually not unfair and we don't actually see that, right? Uh, he continues, there was, after all, some secret being punished, is how they would have thought, is what he's saying. This is a comfortable sort of thing to believe if you happen to be well-off, well-fed, and healthy in body and mind. So do you see what N.T. Wright's saying? 
He said, at the, it's a lot easier to say that this man must have done something wrong because I'm healthy, and so it's a lot easier to like, justify myself in this scenario if like, I'm doing well uh, and he's not. He must be the sinner. I must be the saint, right? In his book, uh, I want to share with you something else that someone else said. Uh, in his book called Grace Can Lead Us Home, A Christian Called in Homelessness, Kevin Nye relates the blind man to those experiencing homelessness in our society. He says this, so often our perception of homelessness is skewed by a bias toward the assumption that poverty and homeless by extension, or homelessness by extension, is the result of a moral failing. And then this is the part that's on the screen. We see a person experiencing unimaginable suffering, and we try to make sense of it by finding someone to blame. The easiest and most comfortable answer is to blame the person. If they bear the blame, we no longer bear the responsibility of helping them. You see, the disciples were just asking a question in this scenario, but in their question, they show their bias toward blaming someone far out of their control so that they can justify their treatment of that person, right? And as Nye shows us, our society isn't much different. And yet, who is? Jesus, right? Jesus is different. Jesus was fully man, just like his disciples and the people who made up the culture that isolated the man in the first place. So he faced the same temptation that we did, or sorry, that they did, to dismiss the man. But Jesus was not just man. In his divinity, Jesus looks and sees the man, and he does not allow his disciples to continue to believe the lie, right? Look at what Jesus says. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then what does Jesus do? He heals the man. And in doing this, in both replacing the lie about who was to blame and by healing the man because of the cultural limitations and realities of the time, Jesus restored the man his dignity. Jesus reminded the man and the people who would see what happened to the man in this moment that he was seen by God and he was loved by God. When I think about what our church, what Missio Dei could be known for, what if it was this? What if it was a place for seeing those that society has pushed to the margins? What if it was a place that reminds people of their dignity? We, we don't in, like give people dignity, right? We just remind people of their dignity and their belovedness in being made in the image of God, a place of healing. I'm afraid, however, that the white American church at large often puts themselves in place of Jesus at the sto- in the story when in reality we have been the disciples right? We have a narrative problem in our country. As Kevin and I stated before, we have a bias that poverty is a result of moral failing. And we use that bias to determine who deserves dignity and who does not. The, the narratives we tell and are told about them, right? It's always them. About groups of people that do not include ourselves, these narratives have significant, significant power. They often pit groups against one another in order to 
to distract from particular realities. If I am mad about, uh, at those who experience poverty in my midst, I am too distracted to be mad at a system that causes the disparity in the first place. And because of that, because these narratives are so powerful, I don't believe we are careful enough or thoughtful enough about the narratives we believe and perpetuate, especially when it comes to who deserves what. Church, the word deserve has to leave our vocabulary, right? Dorothy Day says it this way, the gospel takes away our right forever to discriminate between the deserving and undeserving poor. In other words, consider Jesus' response in John chapter 9. Even if it was a man's sin or his parents' sin, even if it was his fault, was Jesus concerned with fault in this scenario? No. Kevin Nye again says Jesus is disinterested in deservedness. Jesus doesn't care who deserves what, right? He is singularly focused on healing. He's singularly focused on healing. So what do we do about this? How do we disrupt these patterns of beliefs in our own lives in, um, when we hear them in public or we, even with our friends, our family? Well, there's three things I want to look at uh, to end our time, uh, my time this morning. The first uh, one, as is the case with so many things, is that awareness goes a long way. Just being aware goes a really long way. You guys have probably heard this before, but our brains are incredibly wired for categorization, right? And here's why. If every time I see a chair that looks a little bit different from the last chair that I saw, and I had to learn that that was a chair again, it would be exhausting, right? And all of our energy would be wasted on learning what chairs are, right? Or learning what shoes are every time I put on my boots versus my sandals, right? But if I see a brown chair and then I see a white chair, I know they're both chairs, right? And so my brain doesn't have to use this energy in order to figure out every single time what a chair is. And so we're wired toward categorization. However, the issue becomes when uh, we begin to think about groups of people, right? Because categorization helps us function, but also pollutes our perceptions of groups of people that we decide are different from us, right? When we hear something about a particular group of people, we always uh, sort of subconsciously ascribe that to the particular group of people or someone that exists in that group of people. It's why racism is so easy for people, right? Christina Cleveland, in her book called Disunity in Christ, says that in order to combat this, and, uh, we have to practice what she calls cognitive generosity, meaning we need to be willing to use brain energy to turn off autopilot to take the time to honestly examine our polluted perceptions about others. In other words, we need to become aware. When you, talk, or when you walk by someone and think about how they are or how, how that group of them always behaves, stop and consider why you think that way. And then we replace that lie with their dignity, right? Second thing, so that's awareness. Second thing, proximity and friendship also go a long way to combat realities about people, or combat um, lies about people. When you actually engage with the person, instead of making assumptions about them, you begin to tear down the polluted perceptions and replace them with the truth of who they really are, right? 
And while I think proximity and awareness are really, really good things, this last step I think is the most important for us as we consider like um, how we uh, participate in showing people their dignity again. Um, and so this third one, though, I want to illustrate with sort of a strange story from the Bible. Um, it's in 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, don't put it up there yet because I want to lead up into it. So um, when we arrive in 2 Kings, the Arameans, a group of people, were at war with the Israelites, another group of people, right? Uh, and the brutality of the king of Aram, uh, did I, I said Arameans, right? Not Aramites, it's Arameans. Um, the brutality of the king of Aram knew no bounds. He took soldiers from city to city and he would destroy and he would kill. However, the king of Israel had a secret, secret weapon. And that secret weapon was a godly prophet by the name of Elisha. And uh, time after time, what would happen is the king of Aram would set up like a trap or he would be in a particular city. The king of Israel would be going there and Elisha would be like, hey, don't go there. The king of Aram is there. And so time and time again, it was like two ships passing in the night. Like the king of Aram could never get to the king of Israel, right? And so the king of Aram naturally thinks there's a rat in his midst. He thinks that someone, one of the Arameans, was informing the Israelites about where they were going. So he does some research, he does some digging, and he realizes it's not a rat, it's a prophet, right? It's a man named Elisha. And so they change their uh, approach of going after the king of Israel to going after Elisha himself. You guys are with me still, right? Okay, because this is a really fascinating story. So, at least to me. Um, so they find out Elisha is in a town called Dothan. And so they take chariots and horses and an army at night, and they surround the city of Dothan. And so they're in the, uh, Elisha is in the city with one of his servants. The servants wake up, wakes up, looks out, sees the army, and is terrified. And is like, Elisha, it's over, man. Like, we're done for. We are surrounded by an army. And Elisha's like, no, like, we actually outnumbered them. The servant's like, what are you talking about? And so Elisha prays that his eyes are opened that his sight is restored. And the servant looks back out, and it's like a very Lord of the Rings-esque, like, army of the dead scene, um, because he looks out, and there's just, like, chariots of fire around that are on their side, right? Not the chariots that were coming there to kill them, but more that the other army could not see. And so I want to jump into uh, 2 Kings 6 from here and let the story tell itself. Starting in chapter, or sorry, verse 18. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, them being the army, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. I have no idea why they followed him, but they did. It makes no sense. Anyways, after they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and they were very confused because they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel, who was there in Samaria, saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Now, before you switch, before we cast judgment on the king of Israel, his response makes such sense in this situation, doesn't it? They had just been killing his people from town to town, 
and they were out to kill him and Elisha. So when we think about, like, the response, shall I kill them, that's actually a response of justice in this scenario, right? And yet, look at what Elisha says. Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword and bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. This is unbelievable, right? Like, I like, almost cannot handle this passage. The picture it paints is unbelievably beautiful. Think about it. I already said this, but justice would have been killing the army, right? Mercy, good thing, right? Mercy would have been letting them go. But he does not just let the army go, and he does not kill them. He feeds them what is deemed a great feast, and he gives them drink, and then he sends them away. You see, the one who takes away sight and gives sight does not meet them with justice or mercy. He meets them with grace. And grace turns their enemies into friends. It is only by thinking about, dwelling in, and holding on to the grace of God toward us that our hearts are changed toward others in a way that does not then judge them by who they've been or what we think they deserve or even by the worst thing they've done. It is when we sit in that grace for us, we will naturally seek to see and affirm the image of God in others. You see, we were the Aramaeans in the story, right? You put yourself in the story, you're the Aramaeans. We were enemies of God in our pride and in our sin. And we sought the destruction of his kingdom. But God, he saw that we were unable to see and through Jesus, he helped us to see and make himself seen by us. We deserve death, and yet he gave us the great feast that is a relationship with him. This is what I want our church to be known for. Being a place that is so abundantly aware of the amount of grace that God has shown us through Jesus that we can't help but extend that grace to others. And that grace becomes a safe place for people to work out their things, right? Right? The grace of a reframing the narrative surrounding who does and doesn't deserve life abundance. The grace of the invitation into a relationship with God, right? That's what I want us to be known for. One practical way to do that. Um, so tomorrow here from 6 to 7.30 p.m., many of you know about this, um, but I'm going to tell you and invite you again. There is a meeting that Angela Clay will be leading um, that Andrew will be a part of, Andrew Winter right there. Um, it is a meeting where uh, CCO, Communities, or Cornerstone Community Outreach, um, which is a shelter in the neighborhood that we partner a lot with, and we um, are very gracious for that partnership, or we're very happy for that partnership. Um, they're having a meeting to potentially get to expand the housing that they offer, particularly, it's single men, right? To single men. And so they have an opportunity to buy a building uh, right next to their current one, and it's just going to give 40, yeah, 40 more men housing in our neighborhood. Now, th so the meeting is 6 to 7.30 in this room tomorrow. Um, there's going to be opposition, as there always is with 
situations like this, there's going to be housing or opposition. And so we invite you to come in support of that expansion, right? This is an opportunity to continue to affirm the dignity that people have, right? And so I'm going to be here. I'm really excited to be here, and I invite you to come with me. 6 to 7.30 in this room. We'll be sitting up front. If we want to be a place that helps people to see their inherent dignity, if that's what we want to be known for in a way that brings people in who don't have any answers for their lives, but we do it in our own power, I'm just telling you, we're going to resort naturally to categorization and to the old ways of of thinking about who deserves what, right? But if we are empowered by our own reality of God's grace, well, Uptown better get ready to know us quick. And more importantly, they better get ready to know Jesus real quick, right? In the beginning, I asked what kind of church Uptown deserves. To be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know what kind of church Uptown deserves, but I know the one that God has given us, right? My invitation to you, to us, is to begin this year, that is 2024, to become more aware, make this the year that you are more aware of God's grace for you, that we become more aware of how much God loves us and has turned his face toward us in Jesus. We can rest in that grace and let it flow from us as we encounter others, right? Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.